Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Better Brain, Better You. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Webb. I'm so glad that you could join us today because we've got a special episode for you in which you're going to be discussing the inner workings of the female brain. And we're lucky to be joined today by neuroscientist Dr. Sarah Mackay, and we're going to talk to her about her wonderful book, Demystifying the Female Brain. Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for the invite. Nice to reconnect after all these years. Yeah, yeah. So full disclosure, I should have said that actually. So Sarah and I actually studied neuroscience together many, many, many moons ago in, in Oxford. So just full disclosure on that one. So yeah, the I love the title of your book. So Demystifying the Female Brain. I know that it has, because we've discussed it, it has different titles in different countries and, and continents, but it sort of implies that women's brains are perhaps kind of difficult to understand or at least need explaining a bit better or more clearly. But I kind of imagine we're way beyond the sort of notion now that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And as you know, and we both have, I've held, you know, a number I've been lucky enough to hold a number of brains in my hand in my previous existence as a as a neuroscientist and inspect them on a kind of in brain imaging studies and a male and a female brain are sort of anatomically indistinguishable so you know I just is it that it's the, the sort of female biology that sort of provides the foundation for a fundamentally different female brain or is it that historically science just hasn't devoted the time or resources to properly understanding the female brain. Well, thank you for all those, those, those comments and questions. I will just point out that the title is of the books in different countries. Um, in Australia here, it's called the Women's Brain Book because apparently Australians like what it says on the can is what's in the can. Um, and in the UK, perhaps you like a little bit more mystery, demystifying a female brain to like kind of draw people in. Clearly, you're, you're more you're more sophisticated and nuanced than than the Aussies. Uh, I, I as the author, authors don't necessarily get to um, name their book baby. Um, you know, you write it and you, you you nurture it, and then you talk about it for years, but you don't always get to give it the title and the cover that you wanted. I wanted to call it In Her Head, but the publishers thought maybe that would sound too much like a psychological thriller, like at the time, and it came out 2018, um, you know, The Girl on the Train or uh, The Girl on the Brain, I don't know. I wanted to call it In Her Head. Anyway, so I am not claiming that the female brain is, is a great mystery. However, I will pull you up on your other comment, this idea that you think we're beyond beyond thinking that men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Like, I think it's 2020 now. People are getting a little, little more woke, or at least certain portions of the population would never dare suggest that. But certainly when I was writing the book, the, 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 the general idea out there that I got from talking to lots of people about it was people still assume that the differences are large, significant, fundamental, and, and are driving every difference that we see between males and females 
as scientists, you know, we've been trained out of that way of thinking. Um, And and as you've said, if you hold a brain in your hand, you look at it on an MRI scan, you can't say, well, that's a male and that's a female. And if we had 100 people in a room, we couldn't scan their brains or, you know, open up their skulls and look inside and see a pink brain in the women and a, and a blue brain in the men and split them in half based on, on brain anatomy. Mm. And again, if we were to start being a bit more like a scientist and asking more sophisticated, nuanced, detailed questions, are there differences in terms of, you know, specifics around brain structure and anatomy, how the brain functions, looking at aspects of physiology, then starting to look at differences in, say, cognitive skills or emotional variation or um, habits or any other kind of human behaviour, can we always, again, divide the room into men on one side and women on the other? And very, very, very rarely can we ever do that. Certainly most aspects of neurobiology, um, it's, it's almost impossible. Instead, what we see is when we look at populations of people, quite a lot of variation and occasionally we might see subtle differences between a group of males and a group of females but there's more often overlap between those groups Um, and so what I hope I hope I've done at least in like the first chapter of, of this book is try and encourage people to ask a question like a scientist would which is more sophisticated and nuanced what is the specific aspect of males versus females we're interested in looking at and asking about? Um, let's go away and test that. Is there a difference? How different is that difference? Often it's not. And then the next question we could kind of consider is, well, if there is a difference, what was the origin of that? Is it purely genetic? Is it to do with biology due to female biology versus male biology? Is it due to the fact that you know, babies are born into a gendered world. Some parts of the world have those ridiculous gender reveal parties, which I'm not a fan of, and the sex, biological sex reveal parties anyway. But children are raised in reasonably gendered worlds, depending on where you are. Yeah. Um, and so every experience that a child has and an adult has shapes, you know, every aspect of human behavior, including our cognition. Um, and, and in turn, could you know, experiences can shape and sculpt the actual structure of the brain. So I, I guess, you know, the, the differences are never as much as most people would like there to be. Yeah. There are some differences there. Untangling in humans, the origin of those of those little differences that exist is, is, is also reasonably complicated. Um, I suppose... I was quite mystified myself when I went into writing the book because I was really interested in just looking at different aspects of the sort of the the female lifespan um, that, that, you know, are due to our female biology. So I was really interested in how does does the brain change during puberty? You know, what happens, you know, are there differences in teenage brains based on, you know, girls' puberty sort of starting slightly earlier or do guys catch up? Um, What happens during pregnancy? What happens during menopause? Um, and some of the key differences we understand about things like anxiety and depression and Alzheimer's disease. Um, lots of women globally take the pill. Lots of people take HRT. Yeah. Um, men don't do that. So has that shaped and sculpted any aspects of, of, of female brain biology or has it had no impact at all? These yeah. are the kinds of questions I, I was interested in when I started the book. Yeah, I mean, what. One thing I really loved about the book was that was the, the timeline across the lifespan. <clears throat> and, a, you know, it, it's fundamentally a book about 
explaining you know the inner workings of, of, of the brain and you know obviously more, more specifically the fem the female brain and, and another aspect that I that you sort of you know obviously so there's a kind of biological events in a female's life that are kind of you know undoubtedly can are different to a male's life no doubt complex interaction between the kind of biology environment society you know and uh, you know, it's very hard to unpick those things but you did focus on you know the sort of biological events if you like in a in, in a female's life this you know to structure the book almost and one thing that i particularly you know obviously I, a lot of the, some of the stuff i knew but one thing i particularly enjoyed was the sort of myth busting that that you did you know so for you know for example i can't you know one of those common ones that's out there is this sort of notion of a baby brain, you know, for a, for a female, right, during dur during pregnancy. So, wonder if you could unpack that mm -hmm. a bit for us. Yeah, yeah, sure. Baby brains one of the one of the big ones, and like many many, <laughs> I found you know we can talk about PMS as well. There's lots and menopause. A lot of um, these notions are quite cultural as well yeah. depends where you are in the world where you talk about them and i'm a kiwi i grew up in new zealand i always say we don't do baby brain in new zealand no. um i and and i i, I honestly <laughs> live in australia now after the move here from the uk but um i had never heard about baby brain hand on heart through my first pregnancy moved from academia into science communications at that point and was fine. <laughs> and it was only sort of once I was sort of sitting around in mother's groups with a little baby in my arms, people were talking about this idea of baby brain. And I'm like, come on, girls, put yourselves together. You know, that, does, that doesn't happen. Um, there are so many aspects of female biology that have not been studied within science. Yeah. Some, Sometimes, and there's lots of reasons for that, interestingly the concept of what we might call baby brain either during pregnancy or in those first few years of raising babies when women feel maybe forgetful or fuzzy or you know kind of dopey or whatever words you want to use for it um it's actually been reasonably well studied which is okay. um which is good i guess it's pretty easy to get a cohort of pregnant women to come into the lab and run various cognitive tests on them you've got nine months yeah. to do that um now the the bulk of the studies if you were know, to do a meta-analysis and pull, pull them all together um, don't really find any cognitive differences between a group of women who are pregnant and a group of women who are not pregnant or if you were to study say a woman before pregnancy during pregnancy and after pregnancy typically there are no cognitive differences mm. um, there has been one study that came out here in Australia after I wrote the book which did find some cognitive differences in the last trimester of pregnancy, but typically in women who are struggling to sleep. Yeah. So here we've got the, 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 the and, and anyone who's had children will know those first couple of years or first few months of a baby's life, pretty it's tough to get a good night's sleep. Yeah. Um, I was talking about this on ABC radio here in Australia um, and talking about how this idea of baby brain is kind of mythical and, um, one of the, the presenters is a gay man who had just adopted two children. And he said, well, I can tell you that it's not a hormonal thing. It's definitely lack of sleep that, that, make, that makes it tough. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we often almost find the kind of the closest hook to hang our hat on and then tend to blame that. And, and, and once we sort of start looking for a reason to perhaps feel forgetful 
or tired or foggy, we go, oh, well, it's baby brain or, yeah. you know, if you're over 60, it's Alzheimer's disease. My boys can't remember where their shoes are from day to day. They're not pregnant. They don't have Alzheimer's. They just <laughs> can't remember where their shoes are. My husband's always losing his keys. There's nothing wrong with them. Yeah. We just tend to kind of hone in on this particular aspect of point in our lives and then, and then blame that. I think what's really interesting is if we look to the animal kingdom, because animals are far more straightforward. And as I always say, they don't read books on what to expect when they're expecting. They haven't been sitting around in mother's groups discussing this phenomenon of baby brain. And if we look to the animal kingdom and we look at pregnant mammals, or we look at mothers, they actually improve their cognition, various aspects of cognition, whether that be finding their way through a maze or remembering where the food was hidden, um, improve. And there's lots of kind of evolutionary, you know, reasons for that. Primarily, it's probably a really good idea for a mother with a litter of young to be able to, you know, quickly remember where to go and gather the food and keep her young safe. Yeah. Um, now, when I was writing the book, when we were looking at this enhanced cognition in the animal kingdom, women seem to resist the idea that maybe they're actually getting smarter when they're having babies because they're so busy talking to each other about baby brain, um, except in New Zealand. We don't do that. <laughs> um, um, you know, we at that point, the, the animal studies were showing that the enhanced cognition um, and, and indeed kind of biological resilience to aging lasted for the lifespan of, 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 of a rat or, a, you know, whatever animal had been studied, um, yeah. researched in the lab. Um, we didn't know whether that was the case in humans and some work has come out recently um, seeming to support the, the same happening in, in adult humans and studies have been done of women in the 70s and 80s comparing um, women who have had children versus women who have not had any children. And that age, it it appears that motherhood does confer a bit of biological resilience to ageing in in humans as well. Now, whether that's that enormous dose of pregnancy hormones that we get, including estrogen, which is a cognitive enhancer, ladies, um, hormones can be a good thing for your brain. Whether it's that enormous dose of estrogen we get during a pregnancy that confers that biological resilience or whether it's the act of mothering which, or, or parenting, um, which is reasonably cognitively and emotionally demanding. Is that an age-dependent? Training for many years. Is that an age-dependent phenomenon? Is that something that depends on the age at which you actually have children? Or um, I don't know whether they went into that level of kind of detail in these in, in this particular study so they did a, they did brain imaging and they were looking at you know various measures of um you know brain aging like cortical thickness or volume etc yeah. um and and, and and so there was there were biological markers of resilience to aging in the women's brains that had, had babies the mother's brains versus the non-mother's brains i don't know whether they looked to see whether you'd had a baby in your 20s versus your 40s Okay. There is this really, and you know, there there are some other kind of interesting links between, and it's hard to know what's the cause and effect between um, mother or have, having given birth to children and raised them in, in longevity, and that women who um, live well into their nineties um, or you know reach age a hundred typically yeah. have children later in life. Okay. Um, a bit of a tendency for those that cohort of women to have had babies in their forties, whether or not um, 
having the babies in their 40s means they live longer or whether they were just sort of slower ages and that they re retained that fertility into their 40s, that other woman, you know, saw the decline. So maybe people who live to age 100 sort of age slower. Yeah. So they're able to have babies in their 40s. It's hard to have an unpatched upsides to brain health um, for women's brains than these kind of little stories that we sit around telling ourselves. Yeah. And it, it infuriates me because at the same time we want, you know, maternity leave packages and we want, you know, women to be able to get back to work and contribute to society. But at the same time we keep saying, oh, but I've got baby brain. But the data doesn't support that outcome. It's not a so cultural, it's, that's not a male, it's not a cultural bias. It's not one of those typical sort of male biases that's projected. I think it's women chatting to each other. I don't know whether men, it, it's, the, what's interesting is even women who believe that they are more forgetful or foggy or fuzzy, and it's almost undoubtedly lack of sleep, yeah. um, who go into the research lab, will do some cognitive testing on you. Look, here's the results. You, the results are no different than they were last year when you weren't pregnant. Women will still go, oh, but I still feel foggy. I don't think it's the men coming in and telling the women that that's how they're thinking or feeling. I, I, it's, I think it's the messaging that women are, are giving themselves. I will say that lack of sleep is terrible, whether you're male or female. Yeah. Um, I do, having had a couple of pregnancies myself, and particularly the first pregnancy, there is this idea that, you know, you're, you're kind of distracted. You're always distracted. You're carrying another whole human around in your, in your belly. And it's pretty exciting or pretty daunting and a whole lot of emotions going on. And so you, 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 your attention's quite divided. You're constantly flicking between the baby and yourself and what's going around in the world. Mm. Um, and it's a really challenging time. And I and there there are some theories around um, around that that it's that, that that you're more distracted because your mind's kind of half on the baby, yeah. um, rather than it being the fact that you're pregnant has made you dopey, yeah. Which seems to be this myth that that persists. Not hey, you're pregnant. Estrogen's a cognitive enhancer. You never know. You might be smarter now than you. Were. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's one of you know, it's it's one of many, isn't it? So those myths that are out. Mm. I mean, another one is this sort of notion. I mean, it seems neuroscience, particularly in the sort of public sphere, seems to be sort of you know, seems to be sort of rife with these the sort of notion that you know the teenage brain is a kind of sort of raging hormones, you know, and that's what drives this kind of sort of irrational and kind of risk-taking behavior, even though you actually often don't see that much risk-taking behavior, particularly in girls, like you know, but and more 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 so in in boys, but. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you know you could unpack that for us a bit as well. Some of so because you know, generally speaking, yeah. the notion that hormones are contributing throughout the lifespan, it's a sort of thread through your whole book, you know, and their actual relative role compared to the other factors that you've already also alluded to mm. is, you know, is a big question, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, I really went into this book thinking it was gonna be a book about hormones and how they influence and shape various points in the lifespan and they're not always the sole provider they're not always the loudest voice in the crowd um and, and looking from you know through that sort of time of puberty and adolescence is a really really interesting time because it's really you know you've got childhood and that's you know then you know the ovaries or the testes kind of turn on and we start getting this kind of brain gonad conversation um which you know makes people you know 
be able to, to reproduce and all of the various behaviors yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that are driven by that. I think one of what I wanted to do in the book was kind of look, you know, quite sequentially at points in the lifespan and see uh -huh. what the influences were. And um, one of the more interesting studies I was looking at was around the onset of puberty, the age of onset of puberty, the role hormones play in terms of what we call the storm and stress of adolescence. And this is an Australian longitudinal study of childhood that's been following cohorts of children right through their lifespan. And it was looking at the age of onset of puberty and the development of some type of mental health disorders, say anxiety, depression in young people. Um, and it was, so it looked at a little girl perhaps who would be entering puberty younger than her friends, early but normal, say maybe she started developing at around age nine. Yeah. Um, and, and a little girl that develops before her friendship group is far more vulnerable to developing um, anxiety or depression versus a girl who develops the same age as her cohort yeah. um, or perhaps slightly after. Whereas what happens to a little boy who enters puberty earlier than his friends, what happens when, when boys enter puberty? They get really tall, hairy, muscly, and they actually they kind of rise in social stature yeah. within their friendship group. So in a way, they're slightly protected. The little boy who, who enters puberty slightly before his friends is protected against the develop, you know, developing mental health issues versus that little guy, and we all had one in our you know, class, who doesn't start developing until he's about 16. So he's yeah. like the little guy in his friendship group. So you've got children here entering puberty at different points. They're all experiencing pubertal hormones for the very first time, but their experience and the development of what we might say the emotional hormone issues depends on the social context. It right. depends on me thinking about who am I changing and becoming a woman or a man in the context of my friendship group. So hormones were sort of triggering the biological changes, but a, child, a child's experience was far more dependent on the social context in which they were in. And, and I think that that's a, it's an incredibly important mm. message for people to understand. And in a way, really good news, because there's more we can do about managing a child's sort of as much as you can manage a child's social structures or a young teenager's yeah. social context um, then you can you can't necessarily do anything about the age at which they enter puberty really but yeah. we can nurture and support those, those social structures around them and keep an eye on 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 what's happening um, so that was that was kind of a big 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 surprise to me and then you know depending on whatever age you're at and girls on average into puberty earlier than boys. Boys maybe a year or two after the girls, if you looked at a group of people, um, the boys eventually catch up. Um, but what happens when you go and you see this in every mammal, when you when you kind of enter puberty and then you kind of enter the adolescence of your life, you don't want anything to do with mum and dad and your kind yeah. of family of origin anymore. It's all about those social experiences. Yeah. Um, and, and like you say, and you probably know this, we just usually hear very dismissive or derisive or negative um, languaging and conversations around teenage brains they're offline or they're yeah. halfway to adulthood um, and it's a sensitive period or what we might have said in the old language a critical period of brain mm -hmm. development in which yeah. the brains are incredibly plastic and open to experience and need experiences in which to kind of guide development they need the right types of social experiences in which to guide the that development of social cognition 
to develop, you know, emotional regulation skills. There's a lot of skill development, critical periods of sensitive, you know, um, of, of skill development that we see happening in these brain regions. Um, and, and so they're kind of really vulnerable yeah. um, times, but times of incredible opportunity for, for young people to kind of learn and grow. They're not, they're not, we would never say a toddler learning language can't speak, can't speak properly yet, or they're halfway to learning language. Yeah. We see it as a time of nurturing and growth and encouragement and interaction. And the poor teenagers get just dismissed. Yeah. Um, it's just one of these confusing times, isn't it, for <coughs> excuse me, for teenagers and their parents because they're neither yeah. children, they're neither adults, and you know their parents often don't understand that, and they still need this nurturing. But then they also need to be left to be independent as well and try yeah. to work out when you, that, you know, when to do you need that. To without them noticing. <laughs> What's that? Sorry. You need to nurture them without them noticing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You know. So yeah, yeah. I always say, like, keep, keep the nest lined, keep it warm and filled with baking. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, if, if they come home when they need it. They know that home is a safe, nurturing, warm place for them to land. Yeah. Um, that's what I say. So keep keep it as a soft place for them to land. But then you've got to provide that freedom that they within a bit of a framework. But they need. Absolutely, they need those social interactions and experiences. Their brains need it. They need yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and 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 parents find that hard to yeah. let go. You know, they want to divorce us, and we don't want to be divorced. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're trying to pursue their independence, and their brains yeah. aren't quite ready for it yet. But they're, you know, they're they're almost ready, and they have. Yeah. And and I guess they're not going to become more ready unless they get out and have the experiences. Exactly. You just hope that you've given them the skills and the framework to seek out the right types of experiences in a way that's not going to leave them with lifelong damage. Um, but it is. It's a, I mean, I I remember my teenage years vividly. Um, you know, yeah. they, were, they were pretty cool time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So one of the intriguing aspects of the book is, you know, is, is to kind of focus on women and PMS and their reaction to that. Like, you know, there's obviously huge numbers of kind of uh, myths and opinions about that phenomenon. So that was a really intriguing part of the book. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and, and for me, um, I've talked about the puberty studies um, was a real kind of change, shifted my thinking in terms of um, a lot of a lot of aspects of what influences and shapes and sculpts women's brains. So um, I wanted to take a look at how hormones over the monthly menstrual cycle yeah. um, change how we think and feel. And so I went and looked at all of the studies of cognition over the course of a month and the women, the, there's nothing going on. Like women perfectly able to, you know, remember and make judgment calls and plan and be strategic. Doesn't matter what day of the month it is, which is why we can, you know, hold jobs. I yeah. could do a PhD. You know, your yeah. wife does what she does. We're perfectly capable. Um, but I thought, well, what, well, emotions are a bit different because people are always sort of blaming, you know, the hysterical emotional woman. It's a bit of a trope, yeah. um, and 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 women are always talking about PMSing and, and and whatnot. So I thought, oh, well, that'll be an interesting study of hormones and emotion. And the first big surprise to me was when I went to look to find the statistics of, I thought, how many 
you know, I thought this will be an easy find. How many women suffer from PMS? What's like the percentage? And there was a meta-analysis that pulled together data from different countries around the world looking at who puts their hand up to say, I suffer emotional issues and I had PMS. Um, and it depended on what country you lived in. So in France and Switzerland, about 10% of women put their hand up, jump over the border to Spain, about 30 to 40%. Some countries in the Middle East, there varied a lot in the Middle East. In Iran, it was 90%. In Asia, some countries in Asia, we're looking at around 50%. Okay. So you, you range from, nine, from 10% to 90%, hardly anyone to almost everyone, yeah. But it depends on what country in the world you live in. And I thought, well, hormones don't vary that much between nation <laughs> states. So what's what's going on? And there's a women's health psychiatrist in New Zealand called Sarah Romans, who is really interested in this as well. Yeah. And obviously, she says a certain subsector of, you know, women coming to see a psychiatrist with emotional issues and and she's like, they're always blaming their hormones. She said, I don't, I don't think that that's quite right. So she designed a study called the Mood and Daily Life Study. And she's kind of a couple of different variations of this where women, there was like a phone app popped up every day and they had to record um, their physical health, their emotional state. And they were given um, an emotional valence scale that unlike many studies that are done, had the same number of positive as negative as neutral emotions to choose from. Because yep. a lot might give you 12 negative emotions and two positive. So you're already yep. skewing the data. Every emotion is a negative one, apparently. Um, so she was very careful with that. So they had to record physical health, um, emotional status, um, stress level, social connectedness, how socially supported they felt, and also day of the month of the menstrual cycle. The women were not told, there was a study on PMS, mood and daily life. There was various variable data that was being gathered. And when all the data was crunched, it turned out that only one to two in 20 women showed any clear emotional variation okay. based on hormonal data. Okay? Yeah. So they were much more like French, extreme yeah. French versions yeah. than Iranian women. Um, and then when, the, when you repeat that study and you say to women, we're studying mood, we're studying PMS, you get quite different data. So yeah. when you're priming people into thinking it's a study on PMS versus not, you're getting very, very different data in, which was fascinating. So I was talking to um, Sarah about this and I said, well, you know, sort of tell, tell me more. I mean, is this sort of, you know, woman's lived experiences aren't accurate or whatever? She said, oh, no, it's really important to look at what were the strongest correlations with emotion. And it was physical health, level of stress, but most significantly social support. So as she jokingly said to me, they were far more likely to be angry and upset that their husband didn't take the bins out than the fact <laughs> that their period was due in a couple of yeah. days. Yeah. And so what she does is try and work to educate women that, again, Hormones are important and there were a subsection of the population who were vulnerable to hormonal shifts. And they're the women who are far more likely to have um, mental health issues. They're the women who are far more likely to develop mental health issues after they have a baby. They're the women who suffer more going through menopause. They're far more hormonally vulnerable. But it was these other aspects, in particular the other people around us, that are more influential over our, uh, over our emotions than our hormones. Yeah, right. And so maybe that was, was an enormous um, uh, kind of revelation. And, and I think a really good one because it gives women far more agency over mm. their emotions yeah. and 
than than they they think we're, we're told we're in this hormonal roller coaster you can't do anything about it you're going to get cranky and angry and grumpy the week before your period well maybe you know you're not maybe we've got far more agency over our emotions and we know we do from the perspective of neuroscience they're not driving the car they're just you know hormones are in the back seat so so that's so that aspect of you know of hormones i think is you know and the way they interact with our brains the female brain and the way they interact in different ways at different points in your in your lifespan is kind of is you know is 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 really interesting and moving sort of a bit further on to late slightly later in life something that i've just really learned loads more about <laughs> very very recently is a sort of whole perimenopausal kind of region you know of life for for yeah. a female and how in terms of brain function anyway how incredibly complex that is in fact when i first started writing the book um my book agent said why do you write a book in a pause and at that time I was 40 and I was like I'm write a book about menopause that's what my mum once did well now I'm 45 and a half so it seems more relevant but I do think that our generation is very fortunate because we have so much more information now about what's going on mm. um, from a woman's health perspective and especially compared to you know 20 years ago when um, a lot of the women's health studies were coming out and people were completely freaking out about the use of HRT, et cetera, um, and, the, and the effects that that was having on, on women's health. So probably talk about that first and then talk about what we understand about dementia and Alzheimer's because that's kind of hopefully 50, 40, 50 years beyond any woman's experiences in perimenopause. Um, but we never really used to talk about perimenopause. We used to talk about menopause as if, you know, you had your last period and that was it. And then you're a yeah. menopausal, you know, kind of dried up, <laughs> yeah. you know, wrinkly. It was, all, it, was all, it was all very unfortunate. And it seemed to be something that happened to very old people and we didn't ever really want to think about it. And there was probably a bit of a taboo about it. Now we understand that perimenopause, and I mean, it could last for 10 years, mm. that those years leading up, to the menopause up to women's last period when instead of if you had a healthy monthly natural cycle um, of you know this kind of communication between your ovaries and your brain this hpo axis and, and a healthy monthly menstrual cycle um, sort of starts stopping and starting and that nice flowing conversation sort of starts just to, to wind down and it's driven primarily by the ovaries yeah. just getting older and running out of eggs um, and then the brain then kind of having to almost wean itself off those wonderful hormones, um, and in particular estrogen and progesterone. Um, and many women do suffer lots of what we would call menopausal symptoms in, in those years leading up to the menopause. The most common is hot flashes or hot flushes and also night sweats. There's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario that we don't yet know. Um, are some of the other effects that we see um, particularly cognitive effects and emotional effects. Yeah. So feeling again, brain fog or, or fuzziness um, or perhaps feeling more emotional. Is that primarily due to these kind of fits and starts and the roller coastering of hormones before they tram line? Or is it some knock-on effect perhaps of 
night sweats, meaning you're waking up, so you're not getting a good night's sleep. So you haven't got, you're not as well emotionally regulated. So you're more vulnerable to develop depression. It's yeah. really hard to know what the chicken and egg scenarios are. And is it primarily driven by the changing levels of hormones or not? Um, the studies that have been done looking at hormone replacement yeah. would argue that it is, it is a lot of it is driven by hormones. So if you use a hormonal supplement, we used to call it HRT, um, hormone, I don't know what the current language is in different parts of the world around that. Yeah. Um, but if you were say to treat hot flashes or hot flushes with hormone therapy, often you see a lot of the other issues resolve. Um, now that's not always a safe option for every woman depending on her family history or depending on perhaps say her breast cancer history or various other risk factors. But 2020 now we have a really different attitude well, not necessarily a different attitude, but we have a lot of good evidence around the use of hormone replacement therapy to treat perimenopausal symptoms than we did 20 years ago when the women's health studies that were being done, and there were a number of them, that started to show that women who were taking hormone replacement therapy were at increased risk of a lot of different health issues, including cancer, various cancers, heart, uh, cardiovascular issues, etc. What's really interesting is when... Uh, and, and, I, and they say something about a half woman around the world just suddenly stopped taking their hormone replacement therapy. And everyone just totally freaked out um, and just stopped taking almost overnight within the space of a couple of months. The rates dropped dramatically around the world. Um, I was working in a breast cancer charity at the time. And I remember when the studies came out, and there's this kind of like war room um, you know, of them, them trying to, to, to manage the messaging around that. And, and since then, they've been able to unpack the data. And what's fascinating is if you look at these studies, the key indicator determining whether a woman was going to start seeing increased rates of cancer or, you know, heart disease or very, or strokes, et cetera, was the age in which she started hormone replacement therapy. Okay. Some women were enrolled in these trials in their 60s, 70s and 80s, and they were started on hormone replacement therapy, some of them 20 years after they'd gone through menopause. So they'd almost kind of weaned off estrogen, weaned off the hormones. It was reintroduced back into them. And they were the women who went on to develop the various health issues. Right. Women who were started on hormone replacement therapy in their 40s or around the age of 50, when they started seeing menopausal symptoms or within a couple of years after that, their bodies almost hadn't weaned off the estrogen. So if you replaced it, you didn't see that same, um, um, same increased rate of all of these various different diseases yeah. we do see a very very subtle increase i'd have to look look my data up of an increased risk of breast cancer in women who use um, hrt but it's something that goes from um something like three in a thousand women who don't take hrt to four in a thousand women who do take hrt so the increase um, risk for breast cancer was one in a thousand women which is actually far less than if you drink a glass of wine a day right Okay. But, you know, you, you've got to kind of understand the numbers to weigh up the risks and the benefits there. Um, and, and this has kind of been, um, in a way, you know, neuroscientists have gone in or various scientists have gone in and, and done this research in, in, in the animals of the lab. If we get a menopausal rat um, and we reintroduce hormones back into their system, it's detrimental to their health. But if you get a rat going through menopause or prior to menopause and introduce the hormones you don't see the negative um, health consequences 
Now, unfortunately, we can't really make too many um, firm conclusions yet about what's happening in terms of Alzheimer's disease prevention or dementia prevention, because there's not a large enough cohort of women who started taking HRT at the right age, yeah. when the, and the, the right when the window of opportunity is there, who've got old enough yet. <laughs> um, we've got women in their seventies and eighties who were started twenty years too late, and yeah. and and we're not necessarily seeing a huge increased risk, but we we need the women who were kind of started young enough to get old enough to be able to make a firm conclusion. But the data sort of seems to be showing that it's protective. We, we think that that by and large, and I talked to this about it during pregnancy, estrogen is kind of like a cognitive enhancer. You know, having babies and raising them is kind of appears to be kind of protective. And yeah. most likely um, the hormone replacement therapies will be seen as protective as well, or at least neutral. Certainly not, they're not causing Alzheimer's. So women don't need to be scared about that. Um, you know, it doesn't seem to be having a, detri a detrimental effect. So women my age in their mid-40s, um, and now I, I hope the messages are getting out, certainly they are in Australia, um, that it, it can be safe and it can be useful and it can be helpful. Um, but you've got to really find the right type of women's health, um, you know, doctor to, to work with and to understand your particular circumstances. Yeah, I mean a lot, and is it the case as well that I mean, it's I think it's estradiol, is it one of the one of the so forms of estrogen in which you know is one of the potentially kind of protective going forward, but which you can derive that naturally, can you not from many foods anyway, right? So, yeah, 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 you can, um, but women, it, it kind of depends. I mean, and, and I think that there's a lot of discussion about whether you can derive it from soy products. Yeah. Uh, and there's always been these discussions about women in Asia um, don't appear to have the same, um, they don't have the same menopausal yeah. symptoms that women yeah. in the West do. Is that a social cultural discussion? And it is probably partly that. Um, but like how, you know, I said we, don't, we didn't do baby brain in New Zealand when I was growing up. It was just was never talked about, so it wasn't a thing. No. Um, we often that's a, that's always as much of a voice in the crowd as the discussions that women are having within, you know, mothers talking to daughters, talking to sisters, talking to aunts, in terms of recognizing the symptomology. Yeah. Um, it, it, that's as much of a, a part of it as well. But there are certain foods that that women can take. Um, I'm not sure whether the evidence is as good or as strong as it is for, and I'm not, you know, people, this makes me sound like I'm sponsored by Big Pharma saying this, but certainly I don't think women need, and we've been taking the pill for 50 years as well. We don't yeah. need to be scared if that's the option that you want to take yeah. and it works for you. you. You know, you're not damaging your health. Um, you, there, there's, I was remember speaking to one um, woman's health physician doing this and, and he said oh, I have women who you know have given up work because their menopausal symptoms are so bad he stuff treated women for cancer who haven't given up work because they're far more you know likely to seek out medical options yeah. um, we don't need to be suffering through um, it doesn't make you more of a feminist if you suffer through your menopausal symptoms than if you decide to take hormone replacement therapy. There's so many options. It's just about providing the education for women to be able to make a choice that's right for them without the fear that was based on the information that we had 20 years ago. Another, I mean, interesting sort of thing that 
you allude to as well in the book, it was sort of, it, I just wanted to pick up on what you said there, more broadly for kind of studying the female brain, studying kind of female neuroscience, if you like, whether there actually should be sort of, you know, a dedicated kind of research kind of mechanism, research kind of pathway for actually studying female brains and female neuroscience or women's brain health. Lisa Mosconi's kind of work in which she sort of talks about this notion because of thalidomide and this yeah. idea that, you know, that it got that women's brain health research got set back decades because women weren't participating in clinical trials. There's, and that's, that's really interesting. And there's lots of women have been excluded from a lot of clinical trials. And in some cases, there's really good reasons for that. I mean, we've seen that sort of live stream in 2020. Science has been live streamed to the rest of the population in 2020 more than any other year. And, and they're not including, for example, pregnant women in trials of the vaccines this year. Um, rightly so, because we don't know the effects. We need kind of young, fit, healthy people. And so pregnant women have been excluded for good reason. It's not because pregnant women, um, there's, there's, there's not a kind of some kind of panacious patriarchal reason that we're not including pregnant women in these trials. It's because we don't know what the outcomes are going to be and we don't want to harm the unborn children. Yeah. So there's often been lots of reasons why women haven't been included in, 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 in trials um, over the years. And sometimes it's just become a bit of a tradition. We'll just look at some young, healthy white, well-educated males um, when, we, when we're first trialling particular drug or, 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 or whatnot, or they're the ones that are brave enough to sign up, so they've self-selected in. Because yeah. young guys are probably going to take a bit more of a risk than, than, young, than younger women. Um, sometimes women have been excluded because we do have monthly cycles of hormones um, which may alter some of the data coming in. And I don't necessarily think that that's a, a, a wrong reason to exclude women. I think sometimes it's incredibly valid. But what we need in there is the transparency about why that's being done and, you know, take, taking that into account. Um, and, and sometimes what we see is then just traditionally over time, um, you know, there's been less data gathered about women than men. And sometimes we say, well, it doesn't matter. Women are just like little men. Their bodies are just a little bit smaller. But there are some other complexities um, so I'm kind of, I guess, slightly more relaxed than some people because I think often the intention was was good initially. It's like the vaccine trials this year. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there's a negative intention or some, you know, non-feminist intention for not including a pregnant woman in a vaccine trial. Like I wouldn't be volunteering. Most most women would not. But we need to be transparent. We need to understand why and how this is being done and what are we going to do to kind of take it into account going going forward. And I know now a lot of the journals, for example, will um, only accept papers or and I think the NH the NIH um, in the US now requires that depending on what you're studying, biological sex be included as a variable. Yeah. Of course, that if you are having to then double the numbers of an experimental population makes it a whole lot more expensive. There may be reasons to do that that are absolutely important reasons not to do that. I guess what we have seen is that there are some issues that have kind of over time sort of, um, you know, um, snowballed 
um, and, and, and it has had negative effects on, on women's health. Um, but, you know, we, so long as we realise that and we understand that, we can take that into account, um, there's a lot of really good long, longitudinal population-based studies that have been done over many years gathering a lot of data. You know, there's a lot of data there. We just need to kind of go back and carefully unpack that. Yeah, I suppose it was that sort of, this is going off topic a bit here, but that sort of notion that if you'd gone for decades in which women weren't participating in clinical trials and, you know, drugs were being kind of built on the strength mm. of essentially male brains and male bodies, you know, mm. you're fundamentally missing something. Yeah. You know, yeah. Particularly now with the, diff, you know, as you say, there's more similarities and differences probably between, you know, between males mm. and females, but, you know, mm. there are some, you know, some major differences as well that would be very important to capture, right, in that research. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think that, the, I guess, because there's a lot of dis discussion around this these days, and I think that's really important. Um, and it's important to realise there, there are lots of, of lots of different reasons why women have been excluded, and um, not all of them had an evil intent behind it. Sometimes it was being done for a really, really good reason. Um, but, you know, I... I I think, you know, everyone's um, kind of waking up, waking up to that now. That's, and, you know, there was so often I go through the book and there'd be these enormous gaps where I thought there would be a lot of research. And then other times there were, as I say, you know, when I was looking at pregnancy brain, um, there was an enormous amount of research being done. Um, and when we start looking at, um, you know, the very far end of the lifespan, we're looking at the extremely, extremely old um, you know, nine out of 10 people aged over 100 are women. Um, so they're making up the kind of the bulk of the, of the data that, we, that we're gathering then. So, you know, women are kind of make, do make a comeback eventually. Yeah. There's that, I mean, <laughs> you sort of touched on this a little bit, like, you know, and I, and I know this from your book as well and from Lisa Moscone's work and others as well. You know, there's no doubt at all women live longer, right? than men, you know, that sort of indisputable, the kind of median age is, yeah. is considerably older, isn't it, at, at, yeah. at the point of death. And the extent to which that contributes to sort of higher incidence of dementia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, women are, women are living longer. So there's a greater, a larger older population, um, which may then be making up the bulk of, you know, if you've got over the age of 90, um, and I, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you the numbers of people that would be diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but, you know, there's a much larger population of women alive at that point who've got old enough brains that they're eventually developing these diseases of ageing. <clears throat> so the, the, one of the interesting findings is when you look at the end of the lifespan is that women are living longer than men on average. The gender gap's starting to close. Men are catching up. Um, but, but women are not necessarily those extra, say, five eight years that they may have of life are not necessarily healthy in those years. Mm -hmm. So health span and lifespan aren't necessarily matching up and, and you really want your health span and your lifespan to be pretty much on par. Yeah. And what we see is that men are kind of, you know, live and live to whatever ripe old age they live to. And then they usually die quite quickly. So they have a, a their health span and their lifespan are more on par than women's health span and lifespan so men tend to die more quickly women have a more of a lower longer decline in those extra years yeah. which doesn't necessarily mean those years are very good quality years 
for the women that, that, that are living. Um, but, but what we are seeing is that the gender gap is starting to close. And I think it's important to realize when we're talking about people who are in their 80s and 90s, we've got to think about what years were they born in and what were their lives like? Yeah. Um, you know, how women and men lived back in the 30s and 40s and 50s was very, very different to how people live now. Yeah. Um, you know, we're looking at population, so we're looking at populations of people who are very, very old in the 70s versus very, very old now. Their lives then were very, very different to what they are now. So we're sort of starting to see um, some of that burden of, of a misspent youth or however healthy you know your life was, what kind of work you did, how many children you raised, how well educated you were. Yeah. The gender gap is, you know, kind of varies depending on each sort of um, you know, generation that, that, that kind of comes through. And my parents' generation, the boomers, um, still had very different lives. My parents both left school at 15, um, but they both left school at the same very young age. Um, seems very, very young now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, they had very, they had quite different lives. Um, whereas 15 year olds now, you know, are probably going to stay in education. People who are in their 90s, the men were probably far more well-educated yeah. than the women. Yeah. And that's an incredibly important contributor. And they probably were far more likely to be in employment yeah. and engaged in their minds and brains, whereas women were housewives back in the 50s. And these people are now in their 90s. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe that's all, you know, there's lots of sort of bricks in the wall contributing to these these gender differences that we see, see in old age. So it'll be interesting to see you know, as each generation kind of reaches extremely old age, how they, those gender differences change. Yeah. Um, and, and, and for me, that was a really big shift. And, and I suppose to kind of wrap up every sort of point in the lifespan from infancy all the way through, right. I spoke to so many researchers and I would always say to them, well, what can we do? You know, what the best sort of, you know, neurobiological message or support that we can give to people, you know, in infancy, childhood, teenagers, you know, women going through pregnancy, new mothers, going through menopause, you know, super old age, people in aged care. And every single researcher or expert would come back and say the same thing. It's about connecting with other people. It's yeah. about providing a mum, a new mum with the right social support networks. It's providing the right social support structures and guidance and mentoring to young people going through puberty or at high school. Um, you know, it's about, you know, nurturing the newborn baby. It's about giving people in aged care access to the right social support networks instruction and, and remembering that that's kind of key so it didn't matter at what point in the lifespan it was and we tend to hone in when we're talking about women's health and female brains to hormones 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 um, when actually it's people 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 yeah it's the biggest social connection social is that is the biggest predictor isn't it of mental well-being throughout the lifespan well, it's the biggest predictor of, of health really so you know a social prescription is the most powerful um, prescription that you you can give someone obviously it's not the only thing that, that matters but it's a really powerful predictor of health and again in 2020 I think everyone's seen that play out um, yeah. enormously because um, really all anyone you know obviously lots of people have lost their jobs and loved ones and the virus has impacted people in many ways but really we've just been asked to stay home and not see other people um, and for a lot of us, that's been the only change. 
and, yeah. and people struggled enormously yeah. um, with, with that. So I think, um, you know, that's the greatest opportunity really in terms of brain health, whether you're male or female, yeah. is, is, is to realize the, the, that importance of, um, you know, other people. Yeah. And as you say, one of those things you actually have some agency over and something you can do, not now, but under normal circumstances, you can you can do something yeah. about, right? So yeah, it's fascinating stuff. But thank you so much, Sarah. It's been really, really interesting. If people want to find your book, where's the best place to go and find it? Or if they want to come and find you, um, find out more about your book? Well, if they want to find my book, um, I don't know if it's still on the book bookshelves in, um, in the UK. I know it's, it's demystifying the female brain in um, the UK and Ireland. Um, I mean, all, all, all the online bookstores will have it. Um, don't Google me on your Kindle, though, because there's someone who writes rather explicit adult fiction oh. <laughs> <laughs> with the same name as me. Well, maybe, yeah. maybe put it into your Kindle and have a good old laugh. My friends have found it hugely entertaining um <laughs> yeah and so i haven't written people say what's the difference between two books absolutely nothing just different covers thank you so much sarah for a really interesting conversation about the mysteries of the female brain and thank you to you for tuning in today i hope you enjoyed this special episode on the female brain and i will see you next time mm-hmm.